0: So today we start the podcast um, with our buddy Jim Jordan. I'm going to call him J.J. from now on. Our buddy J.J. somehow doing worse today than he did yesterday. He somehow lost votes to become the next Speaker of the House. What I mean here is that on Tuesday, there were 20 House Republicans that voted against Jim Jordan. But today, Wednesday, or maybe tomorrow, by the, or yesterday by the time you're listening to this, That number actually went up to 22. And this is kind of interesting to me because usually after vote, after vote, when you're trying to get a speaker, it seems like you try to consolidate the opposition, try to get less of them. But in this case, opposition to Jim Jordan is actually growing, which I find kind of funny. And I also just find it to be a sign that this is not only a polarizing figure, but this is also a guy that his own party really doesn't have that much belief in. The funny thing too here is that this is a guy who has really not been involved in any big legislation pretty much in his whole almost decade or almost dozen years in office and a lot of people like me on the center right or in the center or on the left would say this guy's done nothing. Why should he be speaker? And I guess my answer to that would be in a sense he kind of sums up the moder or the median. I guess you could say the median Republican voter at this time. They don't want someone to get stuff done anymore. There is kind of an idea of just obstructionism, chaos, bomb throwing, defending the president. And Jim Jordan checks all of those boxes. But to me, it's looking more and more likely that maybe Jim Jordan isn't meant to be speaker. And maybe it's time for a plan B, because right now it's not looking good for him. And I wonder what plan B is. Some people talk about making Congressman McHenry, who is the speaker pro tempore right now, mainly for ceremonial reasons, maybe giving him more power because right now it seems like, I, I mean, I personally think that just Americans want a speaker. These people, I mean, like these people are paid a lot of money and right now they're not doing anything. They're not passing any legislation. They're just holding vote after vote. And it seems like every morning when I just check the news or watch a little bit of CNN, they're doing the same thing. They're voting and Jim Jordan's losing the vote. And again, I, I think Steve Scalise was probably smart to get out of this, even though everyone seemed to want him because he wasn't ready to go down this road. You almost have to be stupid at this point to want to go down this road. And I mean, Jim Jordan's not only dangerous, he's also stupid. So maybe, maybe he's the man for the job. Before we move on, I would also probably that I would probably just add that this is kind of a bad look for Matt Gates if there is a plan B or if moderates work together because his whole thing was basically, I want to change the process. I want to bring more appropriations bills to the table. I want to have single line issues. We have to approve each part of the bill, each part of the budget. And instead, it looks like he just brought more chaos and it looks like this just makes the Democrats look better. So in a sense, this calculation, I think looks bad for Matt Gates. It also just shows me, I think at the end of the day that Matt Gates didn't care about improving the, improving the House, improving the process, cutting the budget. He just hated Kevin McCarthy. This is clear to me now that this was just personal. And I was watching CNN earlier. Forget who it was. It was a congressman. It might have been Ken Buck. He basically said something to the effect of he just wishes they could reverse everything and go back to that vote and keep Kevin McCarthy. Because right now it just seems like they don't have a lot of alternatives What does Jim Jordan do now? I I don't particularly know, but I think they either go to plan B or just keep, keep, keep running it out. Maybe they have 16 rounds like they did with McCarthy. At this time, I have no idea, but all I know is the house is still paralyzed and it's not a great time for it. And probably giving McHenry, Speaker Pro Tempoir, more power right now so at least they can pass legislation and get deliberation going, I think would be a better idea than what we're seeing right now. Moving on, I want to talk about basically how the fog of war, something I've talked about constantly, is kind of leading to not only a mist of misinformation, but also escalation and different perspectives that are sometimes misaligned, misinformed, and dangerous. And I also want to talk about how the basically demand dynamic or the demand structure that social media platforms create has kind of led to different misinformed information platforms, putting out information, people taking them seriously, getting more polarized, not listening to more information, and just going down deeper rabbit holes. What I mean here is, I, I, okay, so first I want to talk about the hospital bombing, right? So it was October 17th, so Tuesday, October 17th. Hamas blamed Israel for that giant blast at Gaza's Al-Ahili Hospital killed hundreds of people. I, I've seen upwards of 300 people. And basically, social media blew up. Even outlets like the Associated Press and the New York Times put out headlines and articles saying the IDF or Israel-linked forces blew up this hospital, killing innocent people. And yeah, this, this led to protests and riots throughout a lot of the Arabic world. This actually somewhat unified the Arabic world for a little bit, against Israel, against the United States. We also have to add the context that Biden touches down in Israel to meet with Benjamin Netanyahu pretty much right when this was all breaking and chaos was escalating. You saw you saw a lot of outrage for like towards Biden for meeting with Netanyahu during this and it turns out later that then Israel denied that it was carrying out airstrikes in the area. It said the explosion was caused by a misfired rocket launched by Islamic Jihad, which is actually another militant group in Gaza. This actually helped remind me as well that it's not just Hamas in Gaza right now. There's numerous terrorist groups, numerous radical groups, which to me highlights how prickly and dangerous and ever-changing the situation is to a certain extent. But basically, if you're not following this too closely... It would really be easy to think either side did it because we know that Hamas and other groups like Islamic Jihad do build up weapons in hospitals, they do attack hospitals, they may accidentally blow up a hospital, they may use citizens as collateral damage and human shields and then lie about it. So it would not seem insane to think that they either accidentally or purposefully blew up this hospital. But then at the same time, you ha- you could have a situation where Palestinians inside of Gaza now don't think they can get out because of how treacherous it is to get to South Gaza, which is also lacking in resources. Humanitarian aid is stuck in Egypt right now because the Egyptians are not cooperating with transferring it to, um, to Southern Gaza. Lots of situations going here. So you, you could also see the scenario where there are civilians still stuck in the city and Israel accidentally hits this, purposefully hits it. Obviously, the fog of war makes this very complicated. Now, the thing here, though, is that the U.S. government, our intelligence, our intel, we don't believe that Israel is responsible for the blast on the hospital on Tuesday. And that is according to the National Security Council. And President Biden also had comments saying that this was likely a Palestinian militant uh, militant group that was behind the strike. But the Economist has a good point here, but it says here in quotes in an article from earlier today, it says in quotes, by the time Israel issued its denial, details had ceased to matter. The catastrophe had sparked protest in the West Bank and, and Jordan and as far away as Tunisia. That was the mailstorm into which Joe Biden flew when he arrived in, in Israel on October 18th for a quick visit. And I think this highlights to me how basically Hamas, unfortunately, And I'm not saying the Palestinian people. I think there's a lot of blight on both sides of this. I think we do need a ceasefire or at least some sort of conversation about how to go next. I also think Biden's administration has been good at pressuring the Israeli government into getting aid and maybe slowing down some of their more harsh strikes. But at the same time, Hamas has done a good job, I think, of seizing the narratives here. And what I mean is that photos were leaked of dead children, and wounded children, and wounded civilians that turned out they were from last year, but they got out there quickly. The story spread that Israel had done this, and by the time Israel could respond, by the time an investigation could be done, the narrative had already spread like wildfire throughout social media and throughout the internet that it was Israel that did it. And we're kind of at a point where the fog of war mixed with the demand dynamic of social media, and just mixed with the incentive structure of disinformation, I don't know if anyone particularly cares about what the truth is anymore because I feel like this is one of the worst times to have a conflict like this just because the world is so divided and our information silos are also so split. So it's really hard for people to know what's really going on. And then also at the end of the day, you also have Al Jazeera putting out a lot of sympathetic stories for Hamas. But we have to remember that Al Jazeera, which I have used time and time when reading articles, We have to remember that it's a Qatari broadcaster that is somewhat, I guess you could say sympathetic at best and at worst, supportive of the Hamas regime. And it is you know, supported by the Qatari government and has a lot of influence in the West. It's putting out stories. And I think the worst part too is that even the New York Times, the AP just picked up on this story quickly. And then also you had people on X or Twitter, whatever you want to call it, quickly acting like experts and just going out there and saying it was one or the other. And a lot of the time, if you sided with Israel, it was Hamas. If you side with the Palestinians and think Israel is an apartheid state, then immediately you said this was an attack by the IDF or Israeli forces, right? And, and, and I think it's just irresponsible. And this, ty- this type of knee-jerk, quick reaction, to the fog of war and ever-changing events can lead to very serious consequences down the road. And that's what we're seeing right now. Again, I don't think it's 100% certain who did this. But what I do know is that the Biden administration has looked at open source data. They've looked at aerial surveillance cams. They've looked on the ground what's happened. And they have concluded, along with the Israeli government, that it wasn't them that did it. But there's a lot of takes out there. That's why I'm just trying to explain what I understand and not give you conclusive it was, it was Hamas or Islamic Jihad or, or the IDF because there's a lot of people thousands of miles away saying, oh, with certainty, it had to be this. And it's just really impossible to say that right now. And again, I think at the end of the day, though, Hamas has really successfully won the propaganda war early because it seems like a lot of the world— especially the Arabic world, is quick to turn on what, what is happening with, with the cause and to turn against Israel really quickly. And so now I'm curious because we are seeing that Hezbollah is hitting Israeli targets and Israeli cities and settlements inside of Israel. And I think you have to wonder, how does this narrative, right? How does this narrative go about and this brings me to, I think, why it's almost the worst time to see a conflict like this happen. And in a sense, we saw this with the Ukraine invasion as well, is that basically social media has this demand dynamic where platforms and the people on the platforms just put out a shit ton of opinions. There's an incentive to let all these opinions spread quickly. And during a moment of crisis, everyone goes onto social media to see what's happening during a terrorist attack or during a potential conflict or a potential war. People wanna go on a platform and see what's being said. And in a sense, that makes sense, but it also allows unchecked opinions, people that just wanna get their voice out there to be picked up by millions who just wanna know what's going on. And it creates this cycle where before anything can be checked, before even people can corroborate information on the ground, you already have narratives spreading like wildfire. And I think that's what we're seeing here because At this point, it really doesn't matter if it was Hamas or Islamic Jihad because a lot of the Arabic world is protesting against Israel, saying Israel did this. And I don't think there's going to be a grain of evidence that would change their minds no matter what. And I think that's where this has a very Brave New World, Aldous Huxley kind of vibe here, is that there's a narrative, there's a news network, there's a social media stream for whatever you believe. You're not being fed what you need to know. You're being fed what you want to know. And I think down the road that will lead to a lot of hate crimes towards both Jews and Muslims, and especially Palestinians. And I I think either way it's bad because during the fog of war, you don't want a drizzle of disinformation coming with it. You want facts. You want uh, an open narrative that changes and people accept it. But that's not where we're at. And in a sense, this kind of reminds me, Unfortunately, a little bit too after 9-11 when people were less concerned about waiting, hearing the truth. It was more like, we're emotionally enraged. We're angry. We want blood. We're going to just go after them. And if there's information out there that fits our narrative, we're going to go along with it. Now, that being said, in this case of the hospital, to me... <laughs> And this is this is going to be kind of surprising because this is more of a pessimist. I mean, sorry, not pessimistic. A pacifist side of me is that to me it's less important if Israel did it or if Islamic Jihad or Hamas did it. It's more that it happened in the first place, and that's why we need to find a way to de-escalate this at any point because there's going to be way more of this. Of course, I mean, I was talking to a buddy at work today about this, and I think we're about seventy to eighty percent towards at least a regional conflict, and at worst. A much bigger global conflict because once a train is starting, once that momentum's rolling, it's really hard to stop it. It's really hard to slow it down. And that to me is really dangerous, really dangerous. And, you know, we're already so divided, radicalized, angry that it just seems like this is the perfect breeding ground for just existentialism toward the other side. And I was reading in The Economist that. In the last week, there's heightened heightened fears about attacks on Jews and the world is stepping up different security measures for Jewish communities around the world because in like a day after the original attack in, in Israel, there was an Egyptian policeman that opened fire on a group of tourists in Alexandria and it actually killed two Israelis and their Egyptian tour guide. And then also, of course, we have to remember the horrible stabbing of that six-year-old boy. In a, in um, a suburb of Chicago, and there's a guy, a landlord of a Plainfield Township, who was accused of basically stabbing this Palestinian six-year-old about 25 times, I believe it was, and the kid Wadia Al fayoum had just turned six, and basically the landlord like walks to the door and stabs the kid 26 times, and also stabs his mom and it was clear that he was targeting this kid and his mom for their religion as a response to you know the war in Israel with Hamas and and you know this is a hate crime because it doesn't matter about the individual the guy knew that they were Palestinian he knew they were Muslims and he killed this 20 there he killed this 6 year old with 26 stab wounds and that those are the type of attacks we are seeing more of and more of and that's why I think we do need to de- de-escalate and you know some people are wondering why Biden had to fly to Israel to meet with Benjamin Netanyahu. I think he did it because, you know, say what you want about Biden. Say what you want about his age. He is very good at those interpersonal relationships, meeting people one-on-one. He's an elder statesman for sure. And I am assuming he is trying to de-escalate with the Israeli government because the Israeli government sees Hamas as new Nazis, sees Hamas as an existential risk, And they are, I think a lot of them are willing to just destroy Palestine and destroy Gaza before there's any peace. And I understand the rage. I think Hamas should be held accountable for this. I think Israel has a right to respond to the attacks. But you can't just go with collective destruction on the other side either. And I think Biden's administration is trying to prevent that as much as possible. I really quickly want to play a little segment from a speech Benjamin Netanyahu gave oh, I think about a day ago, and he is talking about rallying the civilized world against Hamas. And I think Hamas should be obliterated, but I think some of this existential rhetoric he's bringing up, especially when when tensions are so heightened right now, and also we have, you know, Putin meeting with China and a war in Ukraine, I think, and, you know, missile strikes out of Lebanon and Iran ready I think we need to tone down this because I don't think any of us would be ready for quite an existential conflict.
1: It's as though Anne Frank comes back, the story. The horror is the same horror, but we have today, unlike the Holocaust, a state and an army and a people that can fight back. And we are not fighting just our war, we're fighting the war of all civilized countries and all civilized peoples. And just as the civilized world united in fighting the nazis united in fighting Daesh, isis then the civilized world should unite behind israel in fighting and eradicating hamas and i appreciate your solidarity at this time for this goal that serves our common civilization thank you prime minister and we'll do everything in our power to assist the removal or the exit of your uh, uh, nationals from gaza to the extent that that's possible, obviously. Possible, obviously.
0: And um, I'm gonna play a little bit later in it, where he he also does mention that they want peace, but there really can't be peace in the Middle East until they take out this caliphate and Hamas, who he now calls Nazis. And basically, it's like there's no way that there's peace unless we completely wipe these groups out. And I will just say off the bat, like my emotional side says, yes, we need to wipe out Hamas. We need to hold them accountable jihadist extremism should not be tolerated, but then the pragmatic, sensible part of me goes how do we do that? Yeah, they want to go in there and take out Hamas, but what's next? After 9-11, we also had a plan. Democracy democracy building. Take out the Bath Party. de of Iraq. Take out the weapons of mass destruction that we never found. But then what?
1: Something we share, such a peace will only be possible if the, uh, this caliphate This Daesh caliphate is destroyed. Nobody can make peace with Daesh. Nobody can make peace with Al-Qaeda. And nobody can make peace with the Nazis. They have to be defeated. Then we have the peace. Thank you.
0: Again, like I said, my emotional side, my sympathetic side, my bias towards the Israeli people and the Jewish faith says we need to, yes, take out Hamas, make sure the Israelis are safe. But basically, Netanyahu paints step one and the final step, but the intermediary isn't there. He says we need to take out the caliphate and then we'll have peace. But I want to know the process to doing that. I want to know how we get to that step. And right now, I don't see it. And I I think all of this together just worries me because you have a very divided world now. You have the Arab world angry, very angry. You have protests inside of the United States calling for a ceasefire, you, you just have a very divided world. You have Iran ready. You have Putin meeting with Xi Jinping, talking about their great relationship. All of this really worries me. And I think at the end of the day, I feel like Benjamin Netanyahu is quite reactive now because I am. this guy's not an idiot. I, I think he's bad, but he's not an idiot. And I think he understands that his focus on the West Bank, on this right-wing coalition that he formed— distracted him from the, the, the threats and the, and the alerts that they were getting and the warnings they were getting of this happening. And so I think down the road, he knows this is an existential crisis for his regime. A lot of the, the Israeli population is angry with him. And I think um, his survival depends on rallying Israel against the enemy. And unfortunately, I think this is a lesson in a lot of ways that the United States should listen to. Benjamin Netanyahu ran for office and formed this right-wing coalition because he didn't want to go to prison. He was facing several different charges of corruption, and he basically found his way back to be prime minister because he wanted to avoid jail. So then he makes an alliance with these extremists just to form a coalition government to stay in power to avoid jail. I don't know if that reminds you guys of anyone, but isn't that kind of what Donald Trump is doing in a sense, is he's, he's running on the hope that he can win to pardon himself? Sometimes when you're only running to protect yourself for self-preservation reasons, I don't know if that really makes you a leader who cares about the country and the safety of the country. And I would argue to an extent it was Benjamin Netanyahu's self-interest and desire for self-preservation that created a lot of blind spots. And led to the Israeli people not being as safe as they could be. And I think we have to worry that someone like Trump also could do that. Where it's not about the good of the people. He's not running to make the country better again. It's for selfish reasons. And when you run and have power for selfish reasons, it's not surprising where the, when there's then collapses in security and human lives are lost. So I think it's a lesson that we want a leader who is there for the right reasons, not the wrong reasons. So anyways, I guess I'll, I guess I'll wrap up my ranting, but either way, you know, there's constant talk of the United States getting involved if things get worse, college, everything from college campuses to the Arabic world, to the EU, to our Congress, we're divided on this. Honestly, it's just really not a good time. And oh, and our our buddy, Josh Hawley, by the way, he actually wants to use the FBI to investigate student protest movements on college campuses. I can smell the irony here. I thought he was the guy that talked about the weaponization of law enforcement against Republicans. Doesn't this kind of sound like he wants to now weaponize law enforcement against people with different opinions? Then you have like Candace Owens fighting against Megyn Kelly. Megyn Kelly says all these students that were signing those petitions to back Hamas and like Harvard and other schools, they should be banned and barred from ever working again or ever getting a job once they graduate college. Candace Owens is saying, college kids are stupid. And she's like, I had really dumb views in college. I changed. College is where you're supposed to have stupid views. This is the one time, and I'll say it on the record, you guys will think I'm crazy. It's the one time I probably agree with Candace Owens over Megyn Kelly. Very rare. But I do think we're getting a little bit insane like, I think the college professors and the college institutions and our politicians who know better need to understand the contradictions of their progressive views and understand that they're just, they're, it's just an oxymoron to be defending a terrorist group that is against all of the intersectional values they have. But college students say stupid shit all the time. College is a time, and so, like, banning them from ever working again I think is a little extreme, but that's where our country's at, and Josh Hawley wants to invest use the FBI – in kind of a new Red Scare, McCarthyism type of thing. I don't know. So that's always fun. So again, sometimes I always hope like a pandemic or a terrorist attack, I never want them to happen, but if they do, I always hope maybe this will be the one that brings us together, that unifies us. (laughs) No, not, not at all. Not at all. They seem to do the opposite. Because again, we're just not a serious society, unfortunately. So hopefully we can at least get a speaker of the house so we can kind of get shit rolling again. Anyways, I'll wrap it up. Again, hopefully we do see a ceasefire. Um, Hopefully Hamas is held accountable and the pieces of shit who did those brutal massacres are held accountable. And I, I think hopefully Israel tries to maintain the high ground and doesn't just seek an eye for an eye here because I don't think the world can afford to lose all of this right now. So anyways, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. Have a great night. Adios.